on uh, recent changes in the law of search and seizure and how to conduct a murder trial. Uh, getting away from there a little more quickly than I had anticipated, I, I arrived in Los Angeles and thought, well, I'll just mosey on down to Disneyland Hotel and see what's going on. And all of a sudden, I find myself up here. I am totally unprepared. At the outset, I want to say that this little program is the brainchild of our good friend Warren. Now, if it lays an egg, you will all know that he's a bird brain. <laughs> if it achieves any degree of success, you can classify him anywhere from uh, a lunatic to a genius. Uh, take your pick on that. This is a trial. I am the judge. We are about to commence the proceedings in the Mickey Mouse, I beg your pardon, the, the Disneyland Court of the Southern Coastal Group Conscience for the State of California. This action is entitled, The People of the State of the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous as Plaintiff versus the First Step of Alcoholics Anonymous as Defendant. This is a complaint to promote the progress and improvement in the basic structure. At the outset, it will be incumbent upon me to select a jury, and I will now conduct the voir dire of the jury. You are all potential jurors, and since as members and friends of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am assured that none of you have any bias, prejudice, or preconceived <laughs> notions. I hereby declare that the voir dire is completed and all of you are jurors in this case. It will be incumbent upon you as jurors to listen to the evidence, the arguments of counsel, and to complete uh, and arrive at a decision upon the completion of the case. So please listen attentively and assume your responsibilities in that regard. At the outset, I want to introduce to you the participants in this trial. The attorney for the plaintiff is Right over here, Frank O, or as he is more formally known, Frank O, apostrophe R. Counsel, <laughs> would you rise and be observed, please? <laughs> and in this corner, I mean, uh, over here, we have the counsel for the defendant, Don Y. I will now read for you the complaint that has been filed in this case. The undersigned hereby certifies upon information and belief that on or about the 25th of October, 1969, at and within the above entitled court, the crime of failure to change was committed by step one, as follows to it. Count one, a violation of the spiritual progress provision of chapter five, how it works, of Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous, was committed by the said defendant, in that the defendant did then and there willfully fail to change and thereby fail to conduct itself in a manner consistent with the law of attraction rather than promotion in accordance with the tra traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Attached as Exhibit A here too is the original version of the first portion of Chapter 5 as it was written by the surviving co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W. Exhibit A creates a conclusive presumption that the concepts of spiritual progress and attraction, rather than promotion, have been applied in the past to modify Chapter 5 when change became necessary, all of which is contrary to the form, force, and effect of Chapter 5 and the traditions and the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
and therefore contrary to the welfare and dignity of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wherefore, the complainant prays that an order be made causing the defendant to change itself to read, as follows to wit. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become difficult to manage and that it be dealt with according to law. I declare under penalty of perjury that the foregoing is true and correct, dated October the 25th, 1969, at Anaheim, California, Victor E. Complainant. <laughs> and now that you are aware of the complaint, I will advise you that the defendant has entered a plea of not guilty to this complaint and thereby creates the issue that is before us for trial this evening. I will now call upon counsel for the defendant. Oh, by the way, I'll return to you your Exhibit A, hoping that you can lay the proper foundation and reduce it into evidence. <laughs> I will call upon counsel for the plaintiff to give you his opening remarks at this time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Exhibit A of this complaint is a uh, document which originally was drafted by Bill W., and uh, our purpose today is to prove, uh, by virtue of calling a witness who is a member of our society, that uh, in accordance with the changes that you will find as I interrogate or offer evidence from her, uh, that we need to change ch uh, the defendant to offer more attraction to people who are coming to our society uh, at this time, uh, because we feel that the evidence we will offer that the persons coming to our society now and formerly uh, have been not attracted on occasion by the present wording of step one. And <laughs> we would like, therefore, to show you by uh, evidence offered here in the court that it would be in the best interest of uh, spiritual progress uh, in accordance with the concept of chapter five in our book to change the defendant to read as his honor has just read the step to you. Does counsel for the respondent have any opening argument at this time? Very briefly, the burden of proof in all prosecutions of this type is upon the people. Therefore, all we need say is that the defendant is not guilty and the people cannot prove it. <laughs> Will you call your first witness? The uh, prosecution would call uh, Ruth B. member of Alcoholics Anonymous, Miss B? Oh, yes. And how long have you been so affiliated? <laughs> mm. It'll be eight years in January. A day at a time. 
Do you have a copy of Exhibit B or Exhibit A in your hand, Miss B? <laughs> <laughs> I've got them both. <laughs> Calling your attention to the first sentence in that uh, exhibit. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our directions. When you came to Alcoholics Anonymous eight years ago, were you ready to follow directions? Oh, not yet. No, it's very difficult. Well, now, uh, calling your attention again to the language uh, in that chapter five, the second paragraph, for instance, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to follow certain directions. Were you ready to do anything like that? Oh, not the directions there, no. I could never follow directions. What kind of directions? <laughs> Directing your attention to the next paragraph, uh, um, where it states that you may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt if you can. Did you think you could when you came to AA, find an easier, softer way? I couldn't, but I don't know whether you knew I could. <laughs> now, in the center of the page... Uh, the reference to, but there is one who has all power, that one is God. You must find him now. Would Why? you be willing to follow that direction? You must find him now when you came to AA originally? Right now? No, then. Oh. Well, I don't know. You must find him now. Why must I? No, I don't think so, because I couldn't have mustered anything. Would you have been willing to throw yourself under his protection, as it says in the next page? <laughs> I was like threw myself under cars. I don't know about God. <laughs> Would you have been willing to follow step three as it's uh, written in Exhibit A? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care and direction of God, well, as we understood him. There's the directions again. I could never follow directions, so I don't know. I couldn't have done it. No. The directions were difficult. Referring uh, you to step seven as it's written in this particular manuscript, uh, humbly on your knees, ask him to remove your shortcomings. <laughs> I kidding, I just got off my knees. My husband had knocked me down just before I got here. <laughs> I did. I came with a black eye. So. Would you have been willing to follow step 12 the way it was written at this time? Uh, carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. Other what? <laughs> Would you have been willing to follow this last direction in this portion of chapter 5, which is exhibit A? If you are not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread this book at this point or else throw it away. <laughs> Goodbye. I would have thrown it away. <laughs> when you came to Alcoholics Anonymous, what were your material conditions at that time eight years ago? Let's see. We had an air-conditioned Cadillac that was light blue. I had a mink stole, some diamonds, and a husband that beat me every day. Oh, my material things. Let me see. Yeah, I had a nice, you know, yeah, I had a nice Cadillac. Yeah, I had everything going for me. What was your impression at that time of the uh, step, our first step? Uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, it's pretty difficult to say that my life was unmanageable. I mean, how unmanageable can it get when you're sitting in an air-conditioned Cadillac with a mink stole? Yeah? <laughs> Do you think that the step, as it's written in this complaint, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become difficult to manage, uh, would have uh, attracted you to our program sooner? Yes. 
Have you read the story in the back of our big book where it refers to Bob uh, reading the six steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to an early member? Yes. I have no further questions. You may inquire at this time. Very briefly, must be. Were you having any difficulty with your drinking when you contacted Alcoholics Anonymous? My husband was. <laughs> Did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous because you were looking for reasonable literature? No, I was looking for a, a method not to have my husband beat me up. Would you say that a woman whose husband is beating her up, her life is a little unmanageable? I would think so, but I think his was more unmanageable. <laughs> Basically, did you, uh, were you having trouble with semantics or alcohol? I know what alcohol is, honey. <laughs> Let me ask you a hypothetical question since you are an expert. It was. <laughs> entitled to give an opinion evidence. One of my wife's babies recently lived in, lived in Encino. Recently jumped into her swimming pool in her mink stole and drowned. Would you, as an expert, describe her life as difficult to manage or unmanageable? She's not dead, so we don't want to say anything cruel. But it's not too important. She's dead. Uh, well, it's a difficult managing her life, I would think. She had great difficulty there, I would believe. Anybody that would jump into a swimming pool with a mink cell. Virtually unmanageable. Yeah, well, it's becoming very difficult to manage. <laughs> no further questions. I have no redirect, Your Honor. Are we through with this witness? Yes, we are, Your Honor. Thank she you may very be excused. Much for excused. Thank you. Your next witness, please. I have no further witnesses to offer, Your Honor. The plaintiff rests. The plaintiff rests. Uh, or the defendant. The defense rests. Defense, the defendant rests? Well, I, I must say this is the most expeditious trial I've tried this week. <laughs> that being the case, do either of you gentlemen wish to submit this case to the jury, or would you prefer to argue the case? I believe we have reams of argument. On both sides? Well, I never thought that jurors, I mean that lawyers, should talk to jurors with their backs to them. So I'm going to suggest that you gentlemen come up here and give the juries uh, the, your closing arguments. Will you proceed, Mr. Franco? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, my name is Frank and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and ever since I found out I was one, I haven't had to have a drink, you know, which is nice. Uh, the purpose of this testimony is to demonstrate that there are people who uh, come to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, who are persons of uh, considerable... Uh, substance and sometimes uh, 
persons who have not maybe been totally surrendered by the bottle. And when they arrive here and they read our stuff and they discover that their life has become unmanageable, they become very shocked by that. And uh, it's thought by some people that the concepts of uh, spiritual progress, the concepts of attraction uh, rather than promotion, uh, would be better served if our first step were modified, uh, the defendant here being the first step, in order to state that our lives have become difficult to manage, because there are a lot of egos that will accept that kind of language that wouldn't accept the truth, you know. <laughs> You know, I was one of those myself. I came here with a wife and a couple of cars and a house and a few other odds and ends and several kids. And after I got sober, I, I lost all of them. <laughs> and it would have been maybe acceptable to me when I arrived here if it had said that my life had become difficult to manage. You know, it became damn difficult later. I'll testify to that. So, uh, my point really is this. Uh, this projected change is offered to you for your group conscious to act upon and to hopefully using principles of this society, change the first step, the defendant in this matter, uh, and give us your verdict. Now, all the time I'm saying this, bear in mind seriously that uh, somebody did raise this question at the General Service Conference and it was batted down without any hearing. And it's thought by some that we should be more open-minded than this, that we ought to have hearings when we have questions, recognizing always that our uh, general service uh, third legacy uh, requires that three-fourths of the groups in the world to vote in favor of any change to these steps. And so the likelihood of this occurring is very limited, but the possibilities may be worth considering. And therefore, we've offered this prosecution to you and the uh, we feel that your group conscience will set the issue to rest in the Southern Coastal Panel. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Your Honor, I won't identify myself as an alcoholic because that's a blatant appeal to sympathy. <laughs> I once did this to a group of hostile non-alcoholics that I was addressing. They had cups in their hand filled with intoxicating potables, and I had a feeling that they were going to throw them at me. <laughs> so I began my address by saying, I am the victim of an incurable terminal disease. <laughs> Who would hit a man like that? Really? <laughs> Before moving on to the allegations of the complaint themselves, I would, uh, would like to second, in part, the statements of the prosecutor. 
The book very firmly tells us that its authors conceded that they knew only a little and that the power that guides us would reveal more to them. I didn't call witnesses and I didn't cross-examine for two reasons. One, unlike the typical juries that I have addressed, this is a jury of my peers. And (laughs) as his honor may instruct you, you are entitled to bring your knowledge of human affairs and human experience into weighing the evidence. So there is little need, therefore, to put on evidence to you. Secondly, during the morning, I developed a case of diarrhea. (laughs) So I wanted the trial to be as quick as possible. (laughs) To the end that I might not soil my briefs. There are very possibly better than a hundred people here. So by way, if it is not objectionable, I'd like a showing of hands of all those who have been sober one year or more. Virtually everyone won't count it, but it's pretty close to a hundred. A showing of hands of all those who have been sober five years or more. All right. Thank you. Now, the reason I I do this is, as I say, the second motion of the prosecution in that AA should always stand on trial. When this book was written, there were fewer people sober one year than are probably in this meeting. And everyone who raised his hand for five years has been sober longer than Bill Wilson. How'd you like to write the book? (laughs) <laughs> you got more seniority than he has, Booby. <laughs> He's not infallible. He's not infallible. But what is on trial here today is not really the work of a man, because AA, through its group conscience, has produced something greater than the whole. <coughs> I do a lot of speaking to non-alcoholic groups, and they find it inconceivable to understand how this organization functions. Absolutely inconceivable, because to the best of my knowledge, at least since the early Christians climbed out of the catacombs and decided to erect a church, there's been nothing like it. Nothing like it. Read the early days of the Christians if you want to see a little bit of what, 12 st- what AA is like today. Read Paul. They traveled around the countryside, and he admonished the people, do your own work. You are self-supporting. You work all day, and you carry your message at night. Don't take anything from the people. Once an organized religion begins to establish its paid professionals, It loses its spiritual growth when they decide to erect edifices and houses where they can attend. 
it loses what it has. The intimacy of the catacombs, the things that cause people joyously to give up their lives to help others, dissipated. And this is what could happen to AA, probably in its most dangerous stage right now, because right at the present moment it's getting tremendous acceptance by society at large. If we're not careful, we'll lose our leper-like uh, glue that holds us together. When I first came to AA, I was less worried about the fact that the steps uh, had semantic quibbles in them as I was about the, when I heard that my parents approved of it. Uh, I thought there was less here than met the eye if, if, uh, if they could be in favor of it. To find that society approves of it is a terribly dangerous thing. I understand one of our more illustrious members is trying to get $10 million from Congress. I just trust he doesn't distribute it in Southern California or we'll all be drunk. <laughs> we, we are a unique organization. And our uniqueness in part stems on the fact that there are no sacred cows, including the step, including the man who wrote it, with the help of the others. You know, I, I've been in meetings where, non-alcoholic meetings, where they will say, what would you do if AA closed its doors tomorrow? Or how do you discipline somebody who comes in and he starts dominating and wanting to take over? What do you do? You know, and I tell them, we just wait. <laughs> we have a built-in governor, a built-in regulator. If anyone gets too far out in left field, he gets taken drunk. We don't have to expose him. You know, the idea that AA could close its doors presupposes that they still think of AA as an organization where them are doing something for those poor devils, see, who are dissimilar, who are different. But it's some kind of a rehabilitation program because that's all society knows. See, they can't imagine an organization that is the people, where there's no rules, no regulations, no bylaws, no credos, no loyalty oaths. The newcomer has as much ranking as the old elder statesman, unless he looks like he's going to vomit on you, in which case you can ask him to move two seats. not an organization where they do it for them. It's an organization where we do it for us. It wouldn't matter if they closed, for some reason, the halls of all of our meetings. We would grab our coffee pot, our book, and our resentment and open new ones. <laughs> so long as one of you, one of us, is alive and sober, there'll be AA, in the sense that we will carry the message, because our life depends on it. And it doesn't depend on the stability of the individuals. In other words, if our beloved founded father, who was so properly eulogized here in the best talk I have heard Warren give in my life, uh, and I heard him give some good ones, that was a great talk. If our beloved founded father, Bill, should get drunk tomorrow, it wouldn't bother AA one whit. We would gather together in our meetings, because we know how to deal with slippers. <laughs> We'd gather together in little corners and say, Yeah, Bill got drunk, didn't he? I knew he could never get it honest with himself like I've done. <laughs> yeah, old Bill could never let go of my God. That's how I've done it. <laughs> I've been sober two and a half years. <laughs> okay. 
That old ceiling is number one. I told them I would get them. <laughs> we, we deal with slippers. Our organization uh, is based on some kind of a power that is operating within the winters. I've heard it described as a, like a reciprocating engine. Some of us are going up, some of us are coming down emotionally, and together we keep the car moving. Uh, sounds bizarre, but it seems to be how it works. So I see nothing wrong with challenging these steps, any of them, any part of them. I think, I remember I was horrified when an AA Comes of Age came out. I'm glad it hadn't come out uh, before I got sober, <laughs> because I never would have read, read the big book. You know, what, why the hell should I fool around with some immature document? I would have read the one where they came of age. <laughs> <You know>? uh, <clears throat> and apart from the fact that there are some almost unbelievably dry aspects of that particular text that would, you'd have to almost drink to, while you were reading it. They have pictures in there of the very coffee pot, the very sacred coffee pot where the elders drank, you know. Uh, I can just see the pilgrims beginning to gather now, you know, to touch the relics. They had a picture of the old brownstone mansion where the meetings were held. You know, I can see the steps beginning to hollow from the kisses of the pilgrims. This is why it astonished me so to find out that I was here to defend. You know, in AA, I've always been the devil's advocate. I, I, I don't know what the, you know, to ask me to be on the side of the defense is, is almost inconceivable uh, to me. It's like defending Jesus in a Pentecostal church. You know, uh, <laughs> Perhaps the reason uh, is that if there is anyone who could lose a case, it would be me, uh, <laughs> because my life is unmanageable. It's also possible that uh, since in the height of my drinking I was in the district attorney's office, they would have known that if they'd have made me prosecute, I would have moved to dismiss in the interest of justice. <laughs> in fact, I would have made such a motion at the close of the people's case today, but I was afraid that his honor would grant it, and then I wouldn't get to speak. <laughs> but trying for a moment, let, let's take the question as if it were a serious one. <laughs> See, not... This is, this is as it should be. In other words... This particular question, we may or may not have open minds regarding it, but many questions will arise, and we should have open minds about them. So let, let just for the sake of the argument, let's regard this as an open question. As his honor is acutely aware, and as the prosecutor is acutely aware, one of the reasons why California has such strange ballots is that we amend our Constitution constantly. <laughs> See, a Constitution, in theory, should be a very basic document. The reason that the United States Constitution has lasted longer, we are one of the oldest governments in this world, in the sense that we have the longest remaining, I mean, the longest continuing government based on a single format. There have been no revolutions, no great changes, no rewritings, and so on. We're a very ancient country, strange as it may sound. And part of that reason is that the United States Constitution is written in such broad, general 
terms enunciating principles rather than the specific tactical maneuvers to achieve those principles. It is rarely amended. Rarely. An amendment to a basic document should therefore be something that is taken with a great deal of cautious thought and trepidation. Something that has functioned as long as ours has should not be easily cast aside. In California, as you know, whenever your special interests cannot get something through the legislature, they put it on the ballot. We have constitutional amendments dealing with fishing in the Siskiyou River, you know, because the legislature wouldn't pass something, therefore, the by gosh, they put it on a dock. Such little de details as to how you get to a given goal have no place in a basic document. So we should regard any change in our basic document, that is, our 12 steps, with great caution. Not this one alone, but any basic change in them. But nonetheless, they may be changed. Our Constitution has changed. Why, why are the steps set up as they are? Forgetting for the moment the niceties of the wording in them. The, the surprising thing really to me when I heard that this particular question had been uh, put forward at a general service uh, meeting in New York or wherever it was, was I, I thought they all had to be sober a year before they could be on those. <laughs> uh, you know, usually you are through rewriting the book before you get your birthday cake. <laughs> of course the newcomer can improve the book. This is one of the terrible parts about AA. They won't allow you to speak while you're still smart and intelligent and nobody. <laughs> And while you are still smart and intelligent and no better, you can't stay sober long enough for them to let you speak. <laughs> By the time they finally allow you behind the podium, you've been sober so long you know you don't know anything. It's a, it's a tragedy. When I first hit AA, I was going to tighten the 12 steps up. I knew that they had needed a, kind, a, you know, a keen legal mind like mine for years, how they had floundered along. You know, with such chaotic and self-contradictory steps, I couldn't imagine. No, there certainly is no possible reason why there should be the eighth and the ninth. They should be run together. Now, all you need to do is make a list of amends, and then you do it. Now, no reason that you should have to become willing before you do it. <laughs> I said before my second slip. <laughs> There's certainly no reason that the sixth and seventh steps should be separate. Of course, once you recognize a shortcoming, you're willing to have it removed. Bull! <laughs> Very vital. Now I see why those steps are different. At the time, I was sure it was some kind of a weird theological plot to get 12 in there, <laughs> when it should be 10, at the most. We all have these keen attitudes when we come in. I was going to tighten up the serenity prayer and get rid of the excess verbiage. <laughs> Fortunately, there is a cure for this, and it is a cure that is not perhaps uh, in his favor now as it used to be. Uh, certainly, there have been great changes. You know, I hear people now say, you must never tell anyone to go out and drink some more that he isn't ready. You know, apparently they haven't read the book. The book says if, you, if, if you're dealing with a newcomer and he has doubts about whether he's an alcoholic, suggest that he try some controlled drinking for 60 days. 
It doesn't tell him he's got to stop. It says a few good hangovers, if he survives them, may, you know, may make him ready. Because this was the one or point of the one or two questions I asked the witness, was to indicate that we don't come into AA, by and large, looking for rational, reasonable, mentally appealing forms of making nicer people out of us. We come into AA because booze has driven us down to the point of death. If you still have a quibble left in you, you probably then have another drunk left in you. Semantics, the great proselytizer in AA is not Chuck C., is not Bill W., is not Clancy I., is not even Franco D. R. <laughs> the great message carrier in AA is booze. Booze is what instills a state of sweet reasonableness known only to the dying. <laughs> booze is what wears down the point on an intellectual's head through friction against the gutter. <laughs> But just for the heck of it, let us think about what if we were literally going to change a step, and then we'll take the first one, because that's the one that's on trial here tonight. <clears throat> In the first place, they very carefully have changed the exhibit that was read to you. That is not what is in our book. The group conscience managed to do away with this. So we don't have that type of language that is in there. They tell us now that these are suggestions only. Even the fact that you take them is but a suggestion. Is there any really serious reason why you should change the wording of a suggestion? It's not a commandment, it's a suggestion. Are you really concerned with the wording of a suggestion? I'll grant you it's the sort of a suggestion that you might give to a man standing on the fourth floor ledge of a building. If you care to live a happy life, I suggest you don't step forward. <laughs> now, is it really too important how you word that suggestion? The main thing is you're indicating that he not continue in the, <laughs> in the, in the course that he set out for himself. Now... Secondly, take the fact that there are indeed two parts of the first step. If we were to change them to the extent that is suggested, and certainly it's a modest change, we would then have an inconsistency. If you like to play with logic and semantics, is it possible for a person to be powerless over alcohol and his life not be unmanageable? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? A thing that is powerless is like a leaf that is lofted about by a passing whim of a wind, twisted, turned, dropped in strange and exotic places in which he didn't choose to fall. Is a leaf's life manageable? If you cast a bottle onto the sea, most of the time it drifts back ashore, wet and bedraggled. Sometimes it's carried off, never to be heard from again. Sometimes it's smashed on the rocks. That's unmanageability. That's powerlessness. Can you have one without the other? I doubt it. I doubt it. It's certainly true that people can arrive at AA long before they're ready to admit that their life is unmanageable. I did. But I was also unwilling to admit that I was powerless over alcohol, because the two things are synonymous. And my life wasn't 
unmanageable at that time. And I was not powerless over alcohol at that time. And I was not ready for AA at that time. <laughs> I was an alcoholic for many, many years. I read the AA book in 1946 and immediately recognized that I was an alcoholic, meaning that I had the one phenomenon that the book tells us we have in common, the phenomenon of craving created by taking the first drink, the one thing that separates us from the public at large. Our neurosis doesn't separate us. Our mental attitudes don't separate us. Some alcoholics are neurotic, the book tells us. Some are psychotic, the book tells us. Some are normal in every respect, the book tells us, except the effect alcohol has on them. Happy, friendly, normal people. I met them because I spoke in Iowa a few weeks ago. There are none here in California. There are none. I was an alcoholic, meaning that the phenomenon of craving was created by taking the first drink, but I was not powerless over alcohol. My life was not unmanageable, and I was not ready for AA, for the simple reason that I could control my alcoholism. I knew how long it took to get on a drunk and how long it took to get off. Therefore, if I decided to take the first drink, all I had to do was make sure there was enough time to go up and down. In other words, I would leave court on a Tuesday and somebody would say, we've had a tough day, let's have a couple of beers. I would say, just a moment, let me look at my watch. No, I can't. I have to be back in court again on Thursday. <laughs> they thought me strange, but, but not alcoholic. <laughs> when you can do that, you are not powerless over alcohol, despite the fact you may be alcoholic. If you can wait till Thursday and complete your obligations, then go out and celebrate and taper off on Sunday, you are not powerless over alcohol, your life is not unmanageable, and you are not ready for AA. For a very simple reason. These steps are laid out in a beautiful consistency. AA, you cannot really isolate one step and look at it alone, because it is a mosaic. It's an absolute mosaic. I didn't see it for a long time, because I dissected it and played with the parts. And if you've ever dissected an animal, you know when you're done, you don't have a living, laughing, moving object anymore. You have a bunch of parts. This is a mosaic. Each step comes one before the other. I didn't know this at first, obviously. When I hit AA, the steps were the most insulting, the most intellectually degrading things I had ever read. They were obviously kindergarten therapy, <laughs> sandbox morality, <laughs> a cheap version of a juvenile Freud novel. You know. <laughs> they were ridiculous. <laughs> Why? Because I wasn't ready to take the first step, which is the keystone that sets the rest of the program in motion. I was not powerless over alcohol. I was not about to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. The second and third steps were ridiculous. I had denounced all organized religions and supernatural faith many years previously, as most of us have, at least in a pragmatic sense. Even if we keep up the words, we have denounced it. I mean, we have, we have stopped relying on it. Somebody once said to talk spirituality to me was to talk motherhood to a bull. It isn't that the bull is opposed to it, he just isn't equipped to feel it at a deep and meaningful level. I was not about to take the fourth and fifth step, because as an attorney I know all about putting things in writing. The first thing they tell you in law school is, don't do it. 
if you do, do not make it a catalog of your sins, crimes, felonies, misdemeanors, and breaches of trust. People who do things like that do not avoid trouble, they ensure it. <laughs> His Honor indicated that he was in a forum dealing with recent Supreme Court uh, pronouncements in the field of constitutional law. Undoubtedly, then, he was studying the fact that our highest courts are trying to protect people from taking the fourth step. <laughs> I certainly wasn't about to do it. I know all about putting things in writing. And if I would concede that by doing it, I might get a better picture of my overall life, if then I could take those shameful shabby sheets and burn them and stomp the ashes into the dust, it might make sense. But what does our step tell us next? It tells us you shall take this document, this infamous document to some blabbermouth, laying yourself open to a lifetime of certain blackmail. <laughs> does that appeal to the good judgment of a newcomer? Of course not. <laughs> What happens if you do all of these things? You then have a list of people to whom you can make amends. Imagine, after all they did to us, we make amends to them. I look out here and I can see from your very vestiges that you were people like I was when you were drinking. Kindly, loving, friendly, gentle people. Going forth among society, just trying to be a peacemaker, saying, come, let us reason together. Let us do it my way. You know, and they didn't do it. Out of spite. They smote us the 99 blows, till in retaliation we lashed back once or twice, and now we have to make amends to them. Surely this is a step that demands changing. What step doesn't? They're all inane. And if you and if you, what happens if you do them all? You then arrive at step twelve, which gives you the right to get up at three in the morning to call on some drunkard who's going to puke on your shoes. <laughs> if we're going to change this into a program that will appeal to the newcomer, let's discard it all and start fresh. There must surely be a program more attractive than that. I remember going on and getting into chapter 5. I thought, here might be some hope for a rational mind. I mean, into the chapter of vision for you. You know, something that would make some sense out of these idiotic 12 steps. What do they tell you there? It says if you do all of these disgusting things, which they quaintly call putting your house in order, it says surely you will meet with some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. And I thought, trudge, trudge, skip, drop, Tracy, roll, skip, come along. Two steps down the road of happy destiny. Trudge. This conjures up Rudyard Kipling, foot slogging over Africa, boots, boots, marching up and down again. For five yards, I'm one of the faster men in the area. But trudge. When I was younger, people used to say to me, much younger, people used to say to me, you come with me, fella, I'm a swinger, I'm a goer. I never had anybody say, you come with me, I'm a trudger, we'll go through life together. This step does not appeal to the analytical mind that is not ready to stop drinking, that has not been softened by the magic elixir called booze. Fortunately, there is a cure for mental quibbles, and as the one recommended, go out and keep drinking. We save the survivors. Now I think it's a beautiful thing. I have never seen an organization which has a program more accurately and beautifully interwoven into an absolute mosaic. And, and think what it is we're trying to accomplish here. 
throughout our books, our pamphlets, our literature, and our personal experiences repeatedly is what message? The message that since man first trod barefoot on the grape, there have been a number of people who were doomed to death and insanity because there was no human power that could relieve them of their alcoholism. Young's admonition to the wealthy man was, people like you are beyond redemption by any known human power. Occasionally, in rare, rare, isolated instances, people like you recover, because for some reason not known to any mortal mind, something occurs within their spirit, and they suddenly see the world differently, and their entire personality is changed. Seek, therefore, this experience. What AA is designed to do, and, and this experience is not novel. Read William James and his varieties of religious experience. Throughout it are case histories of people who, for the life of me, are perfect alcoholics. Troubled, disturbed, tortured people, unsatisfied with the material world around them. <coughs> Spent their lives in profligate living. Augustine, read him. This cat was a swinger. You know, he would have been right for a Hollywood group. Something happened to him that changed his life. AA is designed to mass-produce a spiritual experience. Rather than waiting for the finger of God to perhaps strike a few chosen and fortunate ones in isolation, it is designed to bring us together into groups like an assembly line maintenance at an automobile plant so that a spiritual experience can occur which will save us from sobriety, I mean from alcoholism and grant us sobriety. It's laid out in a beautiful and consistent whole, started with the very step that's on trial here now. Why must we admit we are powerless? Why cannot we admit we're having trouble? Why must we admit that our lives are unmanageable? Why can't they be difficult? Because there is no possible way you will set into motion the process of production line maintenance that leads to step 12 without having made this first initial commitment. In the 12 and 12, this is an example of unmanageability, by the way. I came down here, I had no idea what the format was going to be, and I assumed that naturally if you needed a book uh, to, that the whole place would be full of them. Wouldn't a symposium on alcoholism, you know, wouldn't they have books? There's not a book in this house. Why should we worry about changing something? We don't even have a copy of it. Fortunately, your central office manager came to the rescue, and he says, I'll take you to the central office, and we'll get a copy if you think it might come in handy. And I said, fine. We went over there. He had a key to the outer door, no key to the inner door. You can't get into it. Okay. We then quickly ran to the clubhouse uh, on Main Street down there. They don't have a copy of the book in the entire house. They have nothing in the house but two drunks talking about the fact their sponsors don't care. <laughs> we, got, we finally picked one up at the Anaheim clubhouse by stealing it out of a secretary's uh, portfolio. But, but step one, and as I say, this is how I prepared my briefs, by glancing at it uh, while I was eating the late meal. <laughs> it says, who cares to admit complete defeat? It doesn't say who cares to admit the fact that it's going pretty rough. Complete defeat. 
Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand we have worked our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this. Alcohol now becomes the rapacious predator, bleeds us of all our self-sufficiency and all our will to resist its demands. It doesn't take away our material possessions, necessarily, although in time it probably will. But it takes away that which makes it possible for a person to live in this world. Once this stark truth, once this stark fact is accepted, however, our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete, not partial. But upon entering AA, we take, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive that only, only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. We know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt as an, Im as an immense experience, this is one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our society has sprung and flowered. Now, what they ask you to do today is to cut off the taproot. The rest, you might as well forget. The rest of the steps will wither and die on the vine when the taproot is gone. Why? Because we will not do these things the balance of them, until we have met complete and utter defeat. It concludes by saying, why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means that the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking would dream of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy to carry the AA message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect, unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA, and there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Fatal. No. Then, and only then, do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. This is what it takes. Today, AA seems to me, as I've indicated, a mosaic. Without the first step and its absolute degradation, its absolute humiliation of defeat, who's going to step off into a void to be supported by a power he knows intellectually to be non-existent? No one. You do it when you have failed. You then step off and find miraculously you're supported. Something you would never have done, however, out of good sense, good logic. And you must therefore take the first step or you cannot take the second and third, which is a total abandonment. Without the second and third, you can't take the fourth and fifth. 
Psychiatrists used to marvel how AAs could find and see and discover their hidden defects of character. How were they able to surmount, they asked, the barriers of defense? Because in theory, you cannot surmount your defenses and see what your troubles are without the aid of a strong psychiatrist or some other person for transference. You must make transference. Otherwise, you are fearful to look at yourself and you cannot surmount the walls of your defenses. How did AA do it? <clears throat> Simple. You turned your will and your life over to the care of God and your defenses crumpled like the walls of Jericho because they weren't your problem anymore. You could see things about yourself that would have driven you to destruction previously because it's not your bag, it's his. Heck, I haven't made a mistake in years. God has done some of the dumbest things through me you could possibly imagine. <laughs> After you have completed your fifth step, you will know for the first time that your life is unmanageable at a meaningful level. It's really only after you've taken the fourth and fifth that you can take the first. See, they worked like a mosaic. In law school, we took torts and contracts the first year, equity, common law, uh, pleading, something in the second year. When we were in the second year, we realized we really couldn't understand very fully the things in the first year until we'd had the second year. And yet there's no way to get to the second year without taking the first year, because that lays the foundation. See? And that's how these steps are. You can't take a fifth step without a third step. You can't take a third step without a first step. And you really can't take the first step until you've taken the fifth. And once you've taken the fifth, you go back and you admit to real powerlessness and true unmanageability. And then, by God, you've got to take the second and third steps, really. Because with a mess like this, which you had no idea about until you took an inventory, you're now ready for a second and third at a meaningful level. Which, when you've completed it, means it's time for another inventory. <laughs> And that's how this program works. That's what the 10th and 11th and 12th steps are. They are like people riding a bicycle. You pump to ride it. And it doesn't matter how fast you've gone, what hills you've travailed over, when you stop pumping, the bicycle soon comes to rest. And when it comes to rest, you fall. And that's what AA is all about. Are you going to rip the first mosaic, first stone of the mosaic out? Are you going to really cut out the taproot by tampering with it? Is there really any significance to it? To any of them, realizing that no human power relieves our alcoholism. Only a spiritual experience. And where do we get that? We get that in step 12. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of the steps, are we going to tear it out? I doubt it. I doubt it. And once again, there's nothing wrong with it. But that doesn't mean we're not going to progress. Somebody mentioned here, I don't know whether it's a prosecutor or uh, in Warren's talk, the humility of Bill in indicating that AA should be open to change. And it should be. It should be. In this little AA way of life, which I was glancing through for inspiration, <laughs> I picked a well-chosen number, 86. <laughs> it says on page 86, room for improvement. We have come to believe that AA's recovery steps and traditions represent the approximate truths which we need for our particular purpose. The more we practice them, the more we like them. So there is little doubt that AA principles will continue, will continue to be advocated in the form they now stand. If our bases are so firmly fixed as all this, then what is there left to change or to improve? The answer will immediately occur to us. 
While we need not alter our truths, we can surely improve their application to ourselves, to AA as a whole, and to our relation with the world around us. We can constantly step up the practice of these principles in all our affairs. In other words, on behalf of the defendant, I would respectfully suggest this. You need not improve him. You must merely improve your understanding and application of it in your own life. It is like in the world today. People cry for peace, but most of them want the biggest peace. <laughs> it takes two to fight. It takes but one to make peace. In effect, this tells us we need not change our steps, but we can improve them. We can improve them by applying them in our lives and become living examples of them. Indeed, let there be peace, and let it begin with me. Thank you. Counsel for the plaintiff is entitled, legally entitled, to a rebuttal. But since he's already had equal time, he's just waived it. <laughs> the duty there, therefore devolves upon me as judge to instruct you in the law that applies to this case, and it is your duty as jurors to follow the laws I shall state it to you. You are the exclusive judges of the facts in this case, and you must weigh the evidence that has been presented uh, in determining the facts. You are not to rely upon the eloquence of counsel or the personality contest that has seemingly has gone on here, but rather upon the merits of the case. So at this time, I will best in you the duty of determining the merits of this case. We will now have a secret ballot. Will all those in favor of the plaintiff please raise your hand? Will all those in favor of the defendant please raise their hand? The plaintiff wins. We will adjourn court. <laughs>